0: Welcome to the Physics Buzz Podcast, I'm Callie Cofield. It's December. For many people, this is a month of celebration, and for many people, it's a month of preparation as we in the Northern Hemisphere begin the winter season. It's a wonderful time of year, and it is absolutely full of physics. Today is a bit of a roundup. We're going to be talking about holidays and cold weather and the physics that you can find in all of them. Like I said, this is a roundup podcast, and we've rounded up a lot of wonderful resources for you over at our blog, physicsbuzz.physicscentral.com. I've put up a post titled Winter Physics Roundup, so go and check it out when you're done listening to this week's edition of the Physics Buzz podcast. Change is a coming for those of us north of the equator. It's a little more intense for those of us, let's say, north of the 35th latitude. I'm talking about the arrival of winter in the northern hemisphere. December 21st will be the shortest day of the year for us. So after December 21st, the days will start to get longer. Technically, we'll be on the upswing in January, February, and March, getting a little more sunlight every day. The seasonal changes we experience are, of course, due entirely to physics. The Earth takes one year to orbit around the sun, and in that time, we experience four lovely seasons. The Earth also rotates on its axis, giving us the days, and if that axis were perfectly straight with respect to our orbit, then the seasons wouldn't exist. The Earth would always face the sun at the same angle. We'd be caught in a perpetual season with temperatures somewhat like those in the spring or fall. But the Earth's axis is tilted. That tilt means that during half of the year, the northern hemisphere is pointed slightly away from the sun. The days are short and things cool off. During that same time, the southern hemisphere is pointed slightly toward the sun. The days are long and things warm up. And for the other half of the year, the orientation switches. In certain parts of the contiguous United States, the longest day of the year might have 16 hours of daylight, while the shortest might have less than 9. That difference in sunlight hours can mean the difference between 90 degrees in the summer and 20 below in the winter. Humans have proved fairly adaptable to cold weather, but if the Earth's axis were tilted even a little bit more, you could have polar temperatures in parts of the U.S. It makes you wonder how that would affect our geography. Now, there is a rumor that gets passed around that the seasons happen because of the Earth's changing distance from the sun. It's true that our orbit is not a perfect circle, The distance between our closest and furthest position from the sun is about 5 million miles, or about 3% of the total distance. But that wouldn't account for the fact that it is winter in one hemisphere while it is summer in the other. And while this distance can have an effect on the temperature on Earth, that change is extremely small. If you want to know more about our planet's journey around the sun, you can listen to one of our old podcasts called What's in a Year? You can find that and another winter-themed podcast, you guessed it, on our blog. In case you forgot, the end of fall is also the time to ring in the holiday season. Historically, winter celebrations of all kinds have focused on the idea that life perseveres through the cold, dark months, and sprouts again in the spring. And thus, many holiday traditions focus on energy. Roger Highfield talks about this in his book, The Physics of Christmas. I've talked about this book before on the podcast, and it really is an entertaining read, especially at this time of year. A central example of this emphasis on energy is the Christmas tree. Bringing an evergreen tree into the home is a tradition that goes back to pagan rituals. The tree is a symbol of life during a time often overwhelmed by death. It's also an example of different energy-saving strategies. Come September, trees have a very important decision to make. Stick it out through the winter and continue to gather energy from the sun, or drop the leaves, go into hibernation, and live off stored energy. Deciduous trees have evolved to take the latter route. The trade-off is they can't grow during the winter, and every spring they have to replace the leaves they lost. Evergreens choose the former option, but to do this, they have to strategize. Evergreens have needles that perform the same function as leaves. They turn sunlight into food, but they have an entirely different design than the leaves on an elm or an oak. Needles are aerodynamic, so they can survive strong winds. They aren't flimsy like leaves, so they can withstand snow and ice. They're prickly and difficult to eat, so they aren't completely destroyed by hungry animals with no other resources. They also have a waxy coating to keep in moisture, and this can serve you well when you want to cut one of these things down and bring it inside your house. A well-watered Christmas tree that's been cut off from its roots can actually withstand the heat of a blowtorch without lighting on fire. But a Christmas tree that has been left unwatered for a few days can go up in flames in a matter of seconds without even the presence of a full flame. I'll once again point you to our blog where you can see a video of a dry Christmas tree burning up. Trust me, it will make you want to water that thing. Despite the tree's natural resilience to fire, I am still astounded by the fact that for many years people decorated their Christmas trees with candles. But I get it, because like an evergreen tree, a candle is also a winter symbol of perseverance. The heat of the sun is scarce, but the spark of life still burns bright." Candles are also an example of nature's awesome energy storage skills. Chemical bonds in the wick and wax of a candle are like pre-prepared energy packets, and we've figured out how to burst them open when we need them. The original source of that energy is, of course, the sun. Plants use photosynthesis to turn sunlight into food, and from there it percolates throughout the food chain. Candles are, of course, the central symbol of Hanukkah. The eight candles on the menorah represent a miracle that took place during the rededication of a desecrated Jewish temple. A few years ago, two students at Yeshiva University in New York City decided to give this tradition a modern twist. Their menorah, which stands about four feet high and four feet wide, had energy-efficient light bulbs instead of candles and was powered by a wind turbine. One of the greater challenges the students faced in getting the thing to work was finding a spot on campus with ideal wind levels. An article in the New York Times about the students included this quote from one of them, Mark Stauber. In the miracle of the menorah, they got back to the temple and there was only enough oil for one night, but they made it last eight days. I see an analogy with the world's fight for sustainable energy to take that and make it last as long as we're going to need it. Okay, I'm going to once again point you to our blog, physicsbuzz.physicscentral.com, where you can see a video of what might be the most creative and nerdy way to light a menorah in history. Some engineers from the Israel Institute of Technology set up a Rube Goldberg machine, which ultimately sets off a computer program that directs a robotic arm to light a menorah and the flame to light the candles is started using nitroglycerin. Even if you don't participate in the religious aspects of this holiday season, it's hard to avoid the non-religious celebrations. Santa and his elves and the phrase, the perfect gift, are kind of unavoidable. If you can stay sane, it's almost kind of fun. Over on our blog, you can hear a podcast I did a while back about how fast Santa Claus actually has to travel in order to reach the houses of all the Christian children in the world. With all the Santa iconography, I'm always reminded of the Northern Lights. Also known as the Aurora Borealis, this natural phenomenon is not actually limited to any particular time of year, nor is it limited to the Northern Hemisphere. In the Southern Hemisphere, they have Aurora Australis. It does take place very far north, kind of near the North Pole, so I feel it's appropriate to group it in with our theme. The Auroras are sort of an illustration of a cosmic battle that's going on between our Earth and the sun. The sun is bombarding the Earth with energetic particles that we call the solar wind. If the solar wind could freely rain down on the surface of the Earth, it would seriously threaten life here. This is ionizing radiation, particles that could potentially tear through DNA. But we are protected by Earth's magnetic field. The magnetic field lines wrap around us, kind of like a cage, protecting us. But sometimes it isn't simply a matter of the solar wind being deflected by the magnetic field. Sometimes the two of them do a bit of a dance together, and that's what gives us the auroras. So the solar wind carries its own magnetic field, and when it reaches the Earth, that magnetic field sort of merges with the Earth's magnetic field. The solar wind is also full of charged particles, and because they are charged, they will go wherever the magnetic field lines go. Earth's iron core acts like a magnet, and that's what gives us this protective magnetic field. A magnet has two poles, and coincidentally, The magnetic poles of the Earth are very close to its geographic poles. If the magnetic field is a cage, the poles are kind of the points where all the bars bunch up and get close together. The field lines might stretch out into space around the Earth, but at the poles, they dive back into the Earth and reconnect with the core. So we have these charged particles racing along these magnetic field lines, and they're being pulled toward the poles. And as they head north or south, they're also being drawn down, closer to the surface of the Earth. Now somewhere in the northern latitudes, the charged particles from the solar wind are pulled down into the Earth's atmosphere, and that's where they run into atoms. Atoms like oxygen and nitrogen. The particles and the atoms collide, and they exchange energy. With this jolt of energy, oxygen and nitrogen release photons. Greens and reds and yellows and even blues. These are the auroras that we see. They are atoms of oxygen and nitrogen that are excited by particles from the solar wind, and when they relax, they release the energy they've received as photons. Sometimes, if there are very strong bursts of solar wind, the charged particles may hit the atmosphere at lower altitudes, and at those times, we can see the auroras further south in the northern hemisphere or further north in the southern hemisphere. Now, as for the charged particles, once they hit the atoms in the atmosphere, they lose energy, they slow down, and they are no longer as harmful as they once were. Six other planets in our solar system also have auroras, and these natural light shows are brought to you by physics. I hope we've shown you that the holiday season is truly full of physics. Once again, check out our blog, the post-winter physics roundup has tons of great videos and links and more podcasts. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Today on the podcast, you heard music from Dida Bass, Sunshine Collective, and Charlie Crow. The music was provided by Mevio's Music Alley. You can find them at music.mevio.com. I'm Calla Cofield. Tune in next week for more Physics Buzz.